Well, good morning again. Uh, we're going to be continuing our way through First Peter, so we'll be in First Peter chapter two this morning. Um, we're going to be reading verses eleven all the way down to chapter three, verse seven. So, First Peter chapter two. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word this morning, we ask that it would change how we live our lives, that that your word would affect every area of our life, that as we obey you and follow you, we may bring you glory and honor. And through our good deeds, God, we ask that you would help us to point others to you. So God, as, as we read your word, we ask that your spirit would be in us 
bringing it to understanding and application to our heart. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the past few weeks as we've been going through 1 Peter, uh, it starts off with giving us this new identity in Christ, laying out for the Christian who we are, that we are chosen by the Father, set apart by the Spirit, and placed into this new covenant of Christ. And now here this morning, uh, he's shifting now into the rest of his letter, that because of everything that's come before, now this is how we ought to live. Because if you notice, uh, whenever he starts with beloved, uh, he's turning to a new spot in this letter. And so because we've been set apart by the Spirit, we're in this new covenant, that, that means we've been united to Christ. And we talked about last week about what that union with Christ gains for us, how that makes us his people, that we're chosen by the Father, and so we're adopted into his family, and we're fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, that, that he's our high priest and we are priests under him, serving him. And now he's taking all of this and saying, all right, now here, this is what this looks like in your day-to-day life. But because of all that, we're sojourners or exiles because we've been given a new home. We're taken out of this kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. So now we're, we have a heavenly home that we're making our way towards. And so when it talks about sojourners, it's talking about someone that's living in a land that's not their own. It's a temporary resident that, that their true home, their true land is somewhere else. But also when we're sojourners or exiles or foreigners, however your Bible may translate that, um, that the world then looks at us differently. If we think of even our own country, um, that there's so much like fear of the other, xenophobia of people that come in to our country to, to start a new life, that, that we look at them differently with suspicion. And so th- that's the same thing that in this first, the first century of these new Christians, that no longer are they part of the Greco-Roman society, that, that now Rome is looking at them with suspicion. And so the way they behave, the way they act is going to reflect who they are in Christ. Because in the eyes of Rome, believers that have rejected all of the Roman gods are, are rebellious, are trouble causers. That, that for those cities that actually worship Caesar and the emperor cult, that now they're these Christians are disrupting the culture, that they are subverting everything, their morals, everything that they hold dear. So what Peter's trying to get these believers to do as, as society is rejecting them, that they're still supposed to do good, to care for those around them, that through their actions, that this, that this world that rejects us may see God himself through us. And so when we think of the culture or, this, or society, 
it's one, it's one thing to be in first century Rome. It's a whole other thing to be now here in America. Um, over the last couple hundred years, it seems like our, our culture is predominantly Christian. And so there's, there's a danger there that if we don't think of ourselves as exiles or sojourners, that, that this is our home and that we just fall in line with the culture around us because we think it's biblical, even though it's not. Uh, so we, we see that in kind of many ways as it's affected the church. Uh, one way of just kind of this hyper-individualism, consumerism, that, that we just go from place to place taking what we need rather than committing to a body of believers to serve them and love them even as our sin hurts one another. Instead, we forgive each other uh, instead of being offended and just leaving, finding somewhere else to go. Or with kind of in our nation, we have this idolatry of freedom to the extent that we become anti authority, that whenever authority structures come into place, we, we say, well, power corrupts, so we're not going to obey, we're not going to listen, we're going to do whatever's right, because God is our leader. Whereas what Peter's trying to correct is that God's placed authorities, and our first instinct should be, how can we honor God by being obedient rather than rebellious? Um, or even with that kind of idolatry of freedom or hyper-individualism, we say, I can do whatever's right in my own eyes, no matter the consequences to others. That I can do with what my money or what my body, whatever it wants, no matter if it means killing an unborn child or living my life in a way that's completely contrary to the word of God because we start rejecting the Bible because we don't like authority. And so we see churches falling in line with the culture of what God teaches about sexuality, of marriage, or even about just like what it means of what truth is, that, that this isn't true, but rather whatever you think for yourself is true. And so there's this danger of society, but of these culturing things within culture just kind of invading and infecting the church. But when we remember that we're sojourners or exiles, then we, we can look at the outside world and recognize and actually being able to defend against it by, by knowing what's out there isn't what God would have us be. And so... So as exiles, we, we look at with a critical eye of the world around us, uh, not condemning, but being wary of anything that goes against God's word. But at the same time, like when we're exiles, when we're not fitting into the rest of society, there, we have two temptations when it rubs up against us. We, we're tempted to fight back, to revile, to... to argue with vitriol or even physically or we're tempted to just passively disengage just I'm going to go with my own people 
other believers, other brothers and sisters, because I don't want to be in the world. I don't want to have to deal with that. But what Peter's doing here in these first two verses, in verse 11 and verse 12, is fighting against both of those. That our true enemy aren't other believers, aren't other unbelievers either. That, that our true enemy is sin itself. It's waging a war against our very souls. And then we're not called to just disengage, to huddle up, but we're called to go out into the world and do good so that others may see us and honor God. And so the believer's response then is, and that question of how do we relate to the world? How do we relate to a society that rejects God, that rejects us, that, that casts us aside? And so what Peter lays out here is with the Spirit setting us apart, they're setting us apart from our former sin and setting us to righteousness. That, that we put aside and we abstain from our flesh or our, our selfish desires of our heart. And instead we do good to others, that we keep our conduct honorable. And, and notice here that the goal of all of this, the end of verse 12, is so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, that, that through the way we live our lives, that it would point others to Christ, that, that others would come to faith because they would see how it's changed us. That we'd glorify God through pointing others to him. And so when we think about our union with Christ, that, that when we're placed into the church of God, that we're placed into the bride of Christ, we're united with Christ. Um, and that, that should change then everything about how we live our lives. And so flowing out of verse 11 and 12 about abstaining from sin, and then conducting our lives and honored by doing good. Uh, Peter then, he's laying it out into three visible areas. that Areas of our lives that are visible to others. Uh, that, that our faith isn't just a private morality, but, but it should be on display in our relationship to government, work, and marriage. As just kind of three examples. In through all of that, like Peter's emphasis then is that, that God is our Lord, is our King, and we obey him above all. But, but because he's sovereign, we have the freedom then to obey these earthly institutions as well because he's placed them there. Now, before we get into all that, just kind of as a, ca as a kind of caveat, there. When we think of authorities, um, that doesn't mean that they're, just because God allows them to be an authority doesn't mean that they're not going to abuse that. Um, and there's certain times when, when we as believers are called to disobey. Um, if we can think of a few different examples through, through the Bible of Daniel and the lion's den or his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in, in this 
fiery kiln by refusing to bow down to this idol. Or even back in Exodus of these midwives that saved Moses and didn't allow Pharaoh to kill him by, by hiding him away. That, that there's times when we're called to disobey. But, but our first instinct shouldn't be looking for a reason to rebel, to instead live our lives however we want. Our first instinct should be how do we honor, how do we obey the authorities above us? And so, in verses 13 through 17, Peter starts off by addressing how we relate to the government. And he starts off with saying that it should be for the Lord's sake. That, that how we obey the state, that it should be done in such a way that, that it's meant to glorify God. That, that it's for his sake, that it's for the sake of the Lord's name. And notice here as well uh, that so some of your translations for human institution might just be um, kind of human creation. That, that it has this aspect of, of a creature, that, that something that's created, that's not the creator. And so like when we think of a king or an emperor, that, that they aren't divine, but they are a created being. And we obey them not because they're godly, but we obey them because they've been made by the Creator. And so it talks about honor, to honor the emperor, to honor everyone. And when we think about honoring, that means doing whatever we can to show respect, to show deference, not by back-talking back or... It doesn't mean we, we don't call out sin. John the Baptist called out Herod and was beheaded for it. But, but it means that we don't just whine and complain, but instead we respect the authority that God has placed above us. And so even kind of in these times, we can think back the past few months of that the government has kind of instituted different levels of how many people can gather. And so we respect that. We, we say, all right, this, this isn't because they're singling us out, but, but it's because it's for the good of society. It's for the health of the nation. And so we listened, we obeyed, and we, we stopped meeting together for a while. And here also we, we see that that's kind of the responsibility of government, that, that there's many reasons for government. There's many things that they're supposed to do, but one of the chief things that they're called to do is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And yet, even when they don't, uh, remember back when First Peter's written, it's written either towards the end of Claudius's reign or the beginning of Nero's reign, where Claudius expelled Christians from Rome. And Nero would eventually go on and actually start crucifying Christians in Rome. And yet, even these ungodly rulers were called to honor and to show respect to. Which is a 
it's kind of strange and it goes against our gut reaction. Our gut reaction is to either take up arms and to fight again against those that would go against the church. But if we remember even back to when Jesus was crucified and he was talking to Pilate and he told Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, they'd be taking up arms and going against you for, for my capture and my punishment. But instead, his kingdom is not of this world. Because our, our true enemies aren't other people, as Ephesians 6 says, but, but it's against the forces of darkness, against the sin in our, in our hearts. And instead of kind of rebelling, it says to do good. And we're going to see that a lot here in this passage. And even if you keep reading through First Peter, that he tells us again and again to do good. And in each of these kind of parts, the doing good has a result. So, so in this, this instance, it's to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That the society at large in Rome was slandering Christians, calling them evildoers, calling them usurpers, calling them rebels, traitors. And yet, if they would do good, it put to silence that slander. Instead, they'd see that, that these people, even though they are refusing to worship our gods, they're caring for others. They're adopting children. They're, they're giving to the poor and needy. That they're caring for the sick. That, that by doing good to others, it put to silence that. And instead, going back to that goal is that these unbelievers would see that and see how we live our lives because we've been united to Christ and, and would be changed by that. that. That through that, the Spirit would be at work in them and opening their eyes what Christ has done for us. And yet, we don't use our freedom as an excuse because we're not really under these authorities of, of the president. We're, we're under the authority of God above all. And yet, it says, don't use that as an excuse to cover up for evil. That just because we have a true king doesn't give us reason to just do whatever we want. Instead, we, we're placed into, we're scattered, believers are scattered throughout the world in different nations and countries and called to seek the good of the nations that we're sent to. All right, and then, then next after this, now he, he turns from how we relate to the state of, of government to kind of our work. Now here, in kind of first century of the Roman Empire, uh, the word here can be rendered servants or slaves. And, and what he's talking about is kind of these household slaves of people that have been kind of either indentured or kind of because they have debts and someone offered to pay their debts or They've just willingly, like, hey, this, if I go to work for this person, they'll provide for me house and clothing. 
It's different from when we think about North American slavery, where people are kidnapped and forced into slavery. Um, and so when we think about this bond servant, servants, or slave here, it's more familiar to just kind of our everyday work life. And what Peter is doing here is like even kind of the most vulnerable among us, uh, those subject to masters, uh, this, this is how they should behave in a Christian way to be a light in this dark world. And he bases it in what Christ did, that Christ is our supreme example, that, that even if we have a boss that mistreats us, yells at us, uh, doesn't pay us correctly by either passing us over for a promotion, even maybe we deserve this promotion or the raise, and instead, uh, because of whatever, uh, because we're a Christian, because maybe there, someone else slanders us even though we're doing good and t- takes the credit for, from us, and, and so we suffer for that. Even our unjust employers, we're still called to, to honor and to do good to because of what Christ did. So, so l- let's reread verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Christ is kind of this pinnacle example of how the Christian should behave when suffering at work. Um, That if someone reviles us, we don't revile in return because Christ didn't do that. We don't commit sin or lie or be deceitful. Instead, we tell the truth, we're honest. And and when we suffer, we we don't threaten, but instead we... We trust in God because God is ultimately the one who's going to care for us and is going to make this injustice right. And when we think about what Christ has done, that, that by taking our sin and giving us his righteousness, that, that, that healing that's done to our hearts by giving us a new heart through the Spirit, that, that it brings us back into the fold of God it, that we are straying like sheep, that, that what Christ did by enduring the suffering for us, he calls us to do, that, that we might endure the suffering in, in our workplace so that others would look at us and would be brought to the fold of God, that, that we're called to carry on this ministry of Christ. And ultimately, like our hope in this is because we've been made right with God, that, that no longer are we condemned, that, that we can do good and suffer for it 
because we know we have a reward waiting for us in heaven, that, that this is a gracious thing, which is just completely contradictory to kind of our first instinct or our first response is, this is horrible. But, but God uses that to either shape our faith or to bring others to him. Now again, like being subject to our employers or our masters, that doesn't mean following into sin. That, that when we submit to authorities above us, that, that doesn't mean following them when they disobey the Lord. But instead, we recognize that the Lord is our true master. That, that he's the one that set us free from the bondage of slavery or our slavery to sin. And now, and now we're servants of him. And yet, at the same time, sometimes there's authorities above us that, that have to be removed um, because they've completely abused that authority. And so, but Peter's goal here isn't to just talk about the extreme example, but rather just kind of that common day-to-day mistreatment of our employers, not, not in kind of the extremes when we have other passages that tell us, all right, when this happens, this is what we do. Instead, kind of, when it relates to the state and the work and then eventually to marriage, that, that it's kind of in, this, in these day-to-day struggles and sufferings. And so, both in kind of relating to the government, it's how we behave is meant to show others and to shut the mouth of those that would slander us by, by seeing that we're loving and caring. And then when we do good for our work, even when we're mistreated, it's meant to bring others into the fold of God like Christ brought us into the fold of God. And now, after this, so kind of reiterating that when we're united with Christ, that that, that changes how we should live our lives. Now he goes into this most kind of basic, most foundational human institution that we have of, of marriage, of what a Christian marriage should look like. And specifically he talks about when a woman comes to faith in Christ, and yet her husband is still an unbeliever. How should she behave? How should she love her husband? How should she win her husband to faith? And so, again, kind of thinking back to this original context of first century Roman Empire, that what Peter's saying here is completely against their culture. Because uh, kind of the common culture at that time was whoever the man worships, the whole household has to worship. Whoever his friends are and who he hangs around with, that's who the wife's friends should be. But, but now she's a believer. She has a family of brothers and sisters in Christ that, that she's friends with and that she cares for. And she's worshiping the true God rather than idols. And so, 
there's a way she's supposed to behave that, that doesn't dishonor that kind of common culture, societal tradition that they have. But, but instead of kind of doing whatever she wants, wearing whatever she wants, she's living her life in a way that's honoring to her husband and, and living a life of conduct that, that he would look at her and see God. Augustine, in his kind of autobiography of how he came to faith, he tells a story of how his mother won his father to faith. Um, and he writes this, uh, talking about kind of his, his mother Monica and how kind of she lived her life, brought her unbelieving husband Patricius to faith. So, so Augustine writes this. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, talking to God, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. That despite kind of the disagreements between the husband and wife of who to follow, uh, that she's faithful to God above all else, that she adorns herself with a gentle spirit. That, that if we look at kind of Proverbs 31 of this example of what a woman looks like, that, that she lives her life in such a way that she's trusting in God, not trusting in possessions or in the value of kind of external looks because like man looks on the outward experience, but God looks at our hearts. And also, kind of with this, like if she's going out of the home every week to worship with believers by not adorning herself kind of with braiding the hair or gold jewelry, I have trouble saying the word jewelry, <laughs> um, that there isn't that suspicion of that she's going out and cheating on her husband, but instead, because she's just, Dressing plainly, it's obvious to her husband and to the rest of society because here, uh, like, marriage isn't a private thing. It's very societal. What goes on in the home, in this culture, everyone knows. That she, she's going out for the purpose of serving God. And she isn't winning her husband to faith by trying to get her kind of his attention to focus on her. Um, instead, it's through her actions. And then, kind of Peter ends it then, kind of looking at the husband. That he's to live with his wife in an understanding way. That, that he truly knows her, understands her, and knows her needs and cares and protects, protects her because she's given the grace of life because she likewise is made in the image of God. And when it's talking about weaker vessel here, it's talking about, yes, generally, physically, women are the weaker vessel, but also kind of societally, especially in this time, that, that they are socially lesser. And so, the man is called to care for those that are vulnerable, those 
that if there's no one else around that, that can't care for themselves, um, that can't get a job because in this day and time that if they didn't, if they weren't married or weren't living at home, they'd be left to fend for themselves. Um, but instead, there's also here this, this warning if he abuses this relationship, um, that he's, his prayers will be hindered, that he's cut off from God, that God abhors this, this oppression, this abuse, and turns his back and no longer listens. Um, that we see over and over and over again in the Psalms and Proverbs that God hates the oppressor. He abhors abuse. And so there's this warning here of loving and caring. As Christ loves the church, the man is to love his bride. Washing, as Ephesians says, that he washes his bride with his blood. That that he lives his life sacrificially for her. Now, again, Peter's addressing here of especially in that first part of a believing wife and an unbelieving spouse, unbelieving husband. That kind of the struggles of that, it's not talking about when it starts turning to physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Um, that's not what Peter's point here is talking about. Because we have other passages of what it's supposed to look like when those horrible, sinful Tragic situations arise. And so, like, if that happens to you, um, like, turn to someone you trust. That, that God isn't calling you to just submit to that. Because when we think of what this, what godly submission is, it's not abandoning our faith in Christ. It's not following him into sin. It's not just accepting the abuse. Um, instead, it's, Looking at that, and as we see in First Corinthians, that that means they're abandoning their call, and so. But kind of with all of these, Peter's addressing kind of the day to day, not not these extremes. That in our day to day lives, whenever believers or unbelievers look at us, how we live our lives should be a reflection of Christ. That. That if we're suffering injustice, that we're doing it so that others would see Christ, would, would see Christ in us, would see that just as he suffered and did not threaten or revile in return, instead he, he did good and took their sins upon him, that we do the same. And so in all of these, it's to point others to Christ, that, that it's to shut the mouth of those that slander us and and see that we're actually doing good. That it would bring others into the fold of God and that it would win them to faith. Now, Peter's main point in all of this is that our faith, it's not just something we keep to ourselves, but as, as what Jesus said, that our faith is like a light, that we... That we Put it like a lamp on a lampstand, 
in the middle of the house so that it lights up the whole room. We don't, we don't hide it under a basket. Instead, every aspect of our life changes because when we're united with Christ, he changes how we live our lives. That, that, that affects everything we do. It affects even the, our very horizontal relationships, whether it's to the government or to our work or in our marriage, that everything is done to glorify God and to bring others to him. That that's our goal in how we live our lives. That, that that's the mission he gives his church, to make disciples. And later on he'll go into that it's more than just doing good. It's more than just serving others. It's also using our words and giving a defense to those that question the hope that we have. Um, but our faith isn't just something we say or something we do. It's a conviction that shapes our very lives. But that's what faith is. It's, it's not just empty acquiescences to, yep, you're God. Yep, Jesus came. He died on the cross. He rose again, but it's, no, he's, he's my king. He's my Lord. He's my savior. He, he took my sin upon the cross, and therefore I'm going to follow him. But that's what faith is. That, that true faith transforms us, that, that we'll do good because we've been made new by the Spirit. So let's pray. God, we need your help every day. God, help us to not look for ways to, to just rebel or do whatever we think is right, but to look for ways to honor those around us, especially those in authority over us. And do it in such a way that, that brings you the glory because ultimately you're our king. You're our Lord you are our master. You're the, you're the groom of the church. So God, help us to honor those around us. Help us to, to live lives that do everything to, to glorify you and to bring others to you. God, help us to, to see our, our ultimate, our true enemy, not being those around us. Instead, we're called to love them, but, but the true enemy that we deal with day to day is our own hearts, our own sin. So God, help us to cut out the sin that is in our lives, to lay aside those sin and burdens that cling so closely. Instead, help us to, to look to you, look to you as not only as our example, but our, our Savior. God, as the weeks go on, as, as life gets long, we ask that even when we suffer injustice, help us to trust you. You, you are faithful, even when we're faithless, that, that you are trustworthy above all else and you don't abandon your people and you comfort us. So God, help us to go to you, to trust in you. And God, 
when we're in those extreme cases of suffering. God, help us to, to be wise and when to be civil disobedient, be wise when to escape and leave a dangerous situation. God, we, we ask that your word would carry forth and would shape us every moment, every day, every week, for the rest of our earthly lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen.